James 2, second chapter of the epistle of James. Word of thanks to those who are praying for the classes. First week is out of the way. One more week to go. So appreciate your prayers for a profitable time with the students in the seminary. My thought was to, during this time, preach messages I've preached before. That's not the case this morning. So, we got enough time to reflect upon a verse here in James 2 that we'll consider as we come to the Lord's table. And again, the Lord's table is for the Lord's people. And for the children who are here, who are not yet saved, who may sit and reflect upon the fact that it is the prayer of your pastor, the prayer of your parents, that one day you will be able to participate. You'll be able to join in. Make sure that the root of the matter is there, that when you see the adults, you see your parents taking the bread, taking the cup, they're doing that because they have taken Christ. They have believed on Him, and they have trusted in Him for their salvation. And you have to do the same by faith, rest in Christ, and then in due course you'll be able to join in in the Lord's table as well. To those of you who may be younger and wrestling over that, maybe wondering whether the time has come for you to join in, be sure to, maybe if you have any queries, talk to us. I'll be glad to talk with you about that as well. We'll read from verse 19. James 2, 19. Thou believest that there is one God. Thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? Seest thou how faith wrought with his works? By works was faith made perfect. And the scripture was fulfilled, which saith, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see then how that by works a man is justified, and not by faith only. Likewise also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she had received the messengers and had sent them out another way. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Amen. This is the very Word of God. Receive it as the Word of God. Believe it as the Word of God. Make sure it has the ultimate authority in your life. And all God's people said, Amen. Let's pray. Lord, help us. As we come to thy word, give us those hearts ready to receive it. We're thankful that our justification can reflect upon what was put before us at the very beginning of our service, nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all our hope and righteousness, nothing but the blood of Jesus. And yet we know that what Thou dost do in us must produce evidence of the very work of God. Bless us here as we consider Thy Word. Give the Holy Spirit. Yea, Lord, give me much of Thy power and wisdom. And give a hearing ear to all who are gathered, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There's an interesting interplay I think, between the concepts of family and friendship. They're both blessings in this life, where we reflect upon what we have within our families and also then what we have with our friends. 
And the Christian ought to find tremendous comfort in the thought that he is part of the family of God. We're just singing along those themes, weren't we? And the whole imagery of the prodigal in Luke 15 as he comes back and he receives and enjoys this, this father's love. What a scene. And it indicates for us, it presents for us something of that relationship that the child of God is to enjoy and to know in his own soul, that he has been brought into the family of God, that he is in that family, and he is loved. But at the same time, there is the concept of friendship. We are also the friends of God, as it says here in James 2.23. And in reflecting on that, it also brings to us blessing and obligation. Our father Adam, made to be the friend of God, created in the image of God with this standing that we would say, we, I think we can assume rightly, was standing in this friendship with God, betrayed that trust, betrayed that relationship, and had to be sought then by the Son of God in the garden in order to restore that relationship. And so from the opening chapters of Genesis, we see the theme that will fill the pages of Scripture. Man made in this dignified position, yet he is in a, a, con a condition of rebellion. He turns against God. He runs from God. He wants not this friendship with God. Rather, he wants friendship in the world. He wants to turn his back on God, and he has to be sought by the Lord. And even those of us who have been sought, those of us here this morning where we testify that we know, we know the Lord, and we've been brought into His family, adopted into His family, and we are the, the friends of God, at the same time we may find ourselves betraying that friendship. We sometimes wage war, as friends do at times. One may turn against another. We can't help but think how often our Lord Jesus is wounded by us in the house of His friends. In this passage of James 2, James exposes a counterfeit and dead faith. Our faith must be living. And if it is living, it will evidence the vitals of works. Those who possess a living faith must evidence that faith. And they have two advantages. These advantages are highlighted in the life of Abraham. Look at verse 23. Abraham believed God and was imputed unto him for righteousness. That's one of the benefits. And he was called the friend of God. I want us to think about the latter statement here, that he was called the friend of God. Just ponder this in relation to what we're about to do here in this place. Something we do with our friends is we bring them into our homes and we bring them to our tables and we dine with them, we eat with them, we do that with friends. We do that with those that we begin a friendship with and we want to get to know them more. We may not know them very well, but we aspire to, we desire to, and so we bring them into our homes, we set the table, we prepare the meal. And we endeavor in those moments around that table to cultivate friendship. As we come to the Lord's table, that in part is what the Lord is doing. He is cultivating the friendship that exists between His people. He is giving them opportunity afresh to see what it is that He has done for them, what it is He has provided for them, how it is that He loves them and continues to love them. How was it that Abraham was designated this description? That he was called the friend of God. There were two things that were true about him. One was how he was seen positionally, and then how he was seen practically. Positionally, he had a righteousness imputed to him. That same righteousness that came to the fore in our reading of the law in Romans 3. The righteousness that we read of in his lifetime, that it's 
imputed to him. It's credited to him. This righteousness that the Apostle Paul draws our attention to then in Romans 4, using Abraham as an example. Positionally, Abraham stands on a foundation that enables him to be the friend of God, and then practically he exercised that standing. It wasn't something that was satisfied merely positionally. It was something that he sought to cultivate. And he did so through a life of faith, a life of believing God. And as you go through his life, you can see this, and part of that, of course, is, is brought to the fore. In verse 21, such was his trust in God, his living by faith, he offered Isaac. This was a, a reflection of his trust, of the friendship that he had with God, the fact that he could trust God even in calling him to such an act. And so we find in the Word of God, in a number of places, him referred to as being a friend. Second Chronicles 20, verse 7, Abraham, thy friend forever. Isaiah 41, 8, Abraham, my friend. And then here as well, the friend of God. And I want us to think about this. Because friendship is something to be cultivated, to be deepened, to be appreciated and valued. So, I've titled the message simply, Being a Friend of God, Being a Friend of God. Note with me a number of things. First of all, it is feasible for you. It is feasible for you. To be a friend of God is something that is feasible for everyone that is here. You can become the friend of God. Two ways to think about this. First of all, it's seen in the means. We see it in the means. What do I mean by the means? How is it that we become friends of God? It is by the Lord's pursuit of us. And this we see in the gospel. This we see in God becoming flesh, in Emmanuel, God with us. We see God pursuing man, having rebelled against God, having turned his back on God in pursuing sin and everything that was against God. God comes in pursuit of man, and there's no greater indication or proof of that pursuit than in the coming of the Son of God. He came into this world. Why? To leave us distraught and in despair, to leave us severed from the love of God, to leave us abandoned, to leave us by the wayside? No. To rescue, to redeem, to cultivate that which was there in the beginning, a true friendship, a true relationship. It's a wonderful thing. Jesus Christ then comes into this world to renew the broken friendship, to give to us what has been lost by our parents, so that man who is by nature afar from God is brought near. How is this so? How can it be done? Go to Ephesians 2. It's just underlining what was sung by the, the choir this morning. Ephesians 2. The church in Ephesus, we, we looked this passage last Lord's Day evening and considered truths here already, but I wanted to look at Ephesians 2. These people who were in this Gentile region, some are Jews, some are Gentiles, all by nature are lost. Ephesians 2, 13. Well, let us go just back up a little bit. Verse 11. Wherefore, remember, don't forget this, that ye were, that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands, these are the contrasting parties, Jew and Gentile, that at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off. The word sometimes just means at one time. This is where you were. You were far off. You were like your father Adam, running from God. Are made nigh, brought near by the blood of Christ. For He is our peace, 
who hath made both, that's Jew and Gentile, one, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace, and that he might reconcile both unto God and one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and so on. So, what's our hope? What is, what is happening in the condescension of Jesus Christ? It is Him coming to make reconciliation. It is Him coming to give a means whereby sinners can be brought into a status of friendship with God. If you're not saved, that's, that's why we sit at the Lord's table. We don't just sit there like some ritual. It is a reflection of our friendship, a, refriend, a friendship that has come at great cost, even the blood of Jesus Christ, and a friendship that is secured by the love of God revealed in Jesus Christ and by the assurance of a completed work. So that if we believe, we trust in Him, we can be confident. This is the means, but it's also confirmed by the message that this is feasible it's confirmed by the message because the message of what Christ has done is to go to the ends of the earth. The command given to the apostles is to preach the gospel, this good news, to every creature. Don't hold it. Don't retain it within Jerusalem or within Judea. Go to Samaria. Go to the uttermost parts of the earth. Go everywhere because this message is relevant. We all descend from a common father. Though we may look different, though our cultures may be distinguishable, though there may be all sorts of factors that cause us to feel ourselves to be cut off from one another by cultural differences, by language differences, or whatever may be described, all of that doesn't change the fact that we are unified in our problem, and the answer is the same. And so God pursues man to the ends of the earth, across seas, over nations, over hills and into valleys, wherever man be found, the message is to be proclaimed that God is coming to bring man into friendship with himself. God willing, we'll look at it tonight. The language of the apostle in 2 Corinthians 5.20 be ye reconciled to God. In a, in a word, that's what we're heralding, isn't it? Reconciliation. It's in the message. When you're going into that world, when you're living among the ungodly, when you're conducting your affairs and your work and your business among those that are not saved, you are among those that have the same need you have. And they're crying out for it, whether they know it or not. Friendship with God. Reconciliation by the blood of Christ. And you have the message. The means is there. The message is to go out. To become the friend of God is feasible for all. Remember that. Remember that when you look at your lost loved ones. Remember that when you look at those that you care for and those that are surrounding you that are not yet saved. It is feasible. There's no shortcoming in the work that has been accomplished. And there's no limitation in the message that is to be preached, is there? It's to go out, isn't it? To everyone. In the confidence that God will draw sinners to Himself so that every single man, woman, boy, or girl can come to the same place that Abraham found himself, be the friend of God. Secondly, it's not only feasible for you, it is favorable for all. It is favorable for all. I don't know why anyone would not want this, this friendship with God. We talk about having friends in high places. <laughs> this is the pinnacle of that. You don't get friends in high places beyond this, do you? The friend of God. This is what we should aspire to have. And it's favorable. First of all, consider the knowledge such a friendship bestows. The knowledge such a friendship bestows. 
our Lord Jesus speaking to the eleven. And John 15 says in verse 15, Henceforth I call you not servants, for the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth, but I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard of my Father I have made known unto you. I am revealing things to you because you're not just servants, you're friends. Oh yes, you have things to do and you have a word to obey and that comes forth in that same passage. But it's cut, you've been brought closer in the friendship. Friendship. And that friendship then brings knowledge. The servant has no idea, but you're friends. And all things that I have heard of my Father I have made known unto you. Think of then some of the ideas of this knowledge that comes to us. This knowledge, first of all, Christ will teach you about yourself. He will teach you about yourself. There are many forms of religion and, of course, forms of Christianity, so-called Christianity, that will deny the doctrine of assurance. And they will cry presumption over your confidence that you're going to heaven. That you know that you're saved. That that sever cannot be broken. But you're the friend of God. Through Christ, you're put into the standing where you're the friend of God. So you're brought into this place where you're taught things about yourself. Some of that, of course, is negative and the exposure of our sin, but also our standing then in Christ. Taught what we really have. Is this not what the Lord does for His people when they even cry out to Him and yet they, they continue on in a condition of, of doubt? Am I really a Christian? Do I believe enough? Do I repent of enough sin? And these, these questions can go on in the mind of a believer for a long time, and especially if they're not exposed to sound teaching. They can drift for years wrestling over whether or not they are truly the Lord's. Constantly, I mean, they're faithful in reading the Word. They're faithful even in prayer. They're faithful in attending of the house of God they even get involved in evangelistic effort, and yet there's this, this, this doubt that fills their souls regularly. And what exposure to the truth will bring is this, this knowledge of yourself, knowledge of what you have in Christ and what has happened to you so that you can gain true assurance. Christ will teach you about yourself. He will teach you His truth in general. Think of it that way. He speaks to His disciples, does He not? In Matthew 13, 11, it is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. There are things He will reveal. Truth He will give. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, 16, we have the mind of Christ. The believer possesses something, the mind of Christ. This is knowledge. This is imparted to us. This is what Christ gives to His people. He teaches them. Sometimes dark and mysterious truths. When we know them, they no longer appear dark and mysterious because He has brought the light of His Word into it and it makes sense to us. And so the Christian actually navigates the world with all this light. In a, in a very real sense, we are like the children of Israel who are in Goshen, enjoying all the light while there's a darkness that can be felt in Egypt. At the same time, and all the mysteries of providence and the curiosity of what is God doing and what's happening and so on and so forth, the child of God walks, not knowing every answer, not understanding every detail, but he does walk in this light that the world can't comprehend. They're shrouded in darkness, shrouded in ignorance. They can't make sense of it. Christ comes and teaches us so that in Thy light shall we see light, we say with the psalmist. Oh, He teaches us. He does. He wants us to know His truth. He wants us to understand things. Things that He doesn't reveal to anyone else. Things that the world stay in the dark. And I'm not talking about strange, weird voices and unusual personal revelations. I'm not talking about that. But just understanding life and the world, the believer knows these things. You, you see that reflected even in Abraham, the friend of God, when the Lord says when he's going to destroy Sodom, 
Shall I hide from Abraham the thing which I do? The Lord feels an obligation to reveal to Abraham what he's going to do. That's friendship. And the Lord does the same for his people. Child of God, don't, don't dismiss it. Don't think little of it. And don't cut yourself off from God. Be in his word. We've been emphasizing this of late. Be in his word. The friends of God will have instruction. They will be taught. You're going into the world. You utter many words, but have you received instruction from your God day after day? To be a friend of God is to enjoy this. It's to read His Word, and you may not be able to make any correlation with what you read in the morning and what application it's going to have later in the day, but you will find out that often as you diligently give yourself to the reading of God's Word, that it finds application later in the day, or maybe the next day. What's happening? You're the friend of God. He's informing your heart. He's teaching you His ways so that you're prepared. Oh, perhaps you've read something and you have no idea that this tremendous temptation that Satan has orchestrated just for you to bring you down. And in the reading of the Word, God being your friend will give you the very text that will keep you in the hour of temptation, give you strength to fight. No, He will not hide from Abraham the thing which He will do. He will teach us. And of course, then He will show us the right path, which flows into what we've already been really thinking upon. He will teach us the right path. Psalm 16, verse 7, I will bless the Lord who hath given me counsel. Sing. He gives us counsel. The friend of God goes back to God and blesses Him for this friendship as He counsels us through life. And it's all through life, isn't it? The Asaph comes to that conclusion in Psalm 73, 24, Thou shalt guide me with thy counsel and afterward receive me to glory. The sense is my entire life will be like this. You'll guide me with your counsel and afterward receive me to glory. So this is a favorable thing, is it not? I think it's a favorable thing to have the knowledge that this friendship bestows, but also consider the confidence such a friendship bestows. Confidence. Again, we go back to what we said. I mean, you know, having God as your friend, this is, this is having friends in high places. This gives us confidence that no other friendship can give. And in Jesus Christ, then, we come with boldness to the throne of grace. We come with confidence to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I think of those words that Jonathan spoke to David in 2 Samuel 20, verse 4. Whatsoever thy soul desireth, I will even do it for thee. Our Lord not teach us the same thing? Did he not say the same thing to his disciples? Whatsoever you ask in my name, that will I do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You can come in prayer with confidence that no one else has. You're the friend of God, whatsoever thy soul desireth. Now, of course, there's assumption there that the soul has been transformed, transformed by divine grace, and you actually desire things that please God. Thirdly, so we think of the favorableness of this for all of us. The knowledge that such a friendship bestows, the confidence such a friendship bestows, the encouragement such a friendship bestows. Encouragement. I mean by this, the, the strength that it puts into us to know that we have this friendship with the Lord. We know this when we do something difficult, don't we? Do something hard. Maybe some of you have already faced it. It's part of your 2024 desire and resolution was I'm, I'm going to hit the gym or whatever it might be. And you may have realized that having a friend's going to help in such occasions. Someone to stand with you, someone to keep you accountable, someone to say, yep, I'll see you there Wednesday morning. And this helps us, helps us with great difficulty to have someone with us 
We mentioned Jonathan. Think of his armor bearer. That was enough to go up, face that garrison, two men together. This is what we have with the Lord. We are greatly helped in doing our duty, stimulating to the right thing. We, as we, we see the friendship we have with our Lord. Think of Proverbs 27, 17, iron sharpeneth iron, so a man sharpeneth the countenance of his friend. What greater reflection do we have in this than the friendship we have with Christ? Are we not encouraged, child of God? Are we not encouraged? When we're considering duty, when we're recognizing what we're called to do, to look upon the face of our beloved Savior, to see in Him His willingness to fulfill the Father's will, His willingness to do everything to procure our salvation, His willingness to bear our sin upon His own body. Are we not changed? Does not the very countenance of Christ provoke in us encouragement to do what is right? Is that not the great instigator that clothes us with strength and honor, to use the language of Proverbs 31? Fourthly, consider the fruit such a friendship bestows. There's great fruit in it. A few things here. First, true friendship produces a strong love for Christ. True friendship produces a strong love for Christ. We will love Him. If we have this friendship, if this is true, Abraham's a friend of God, if that's true of us, if we're the friends of God, it will produce a strong love for Christ. How else can we then take the language of Proverbs 17, 17, a friend loveth at all times. A friend loveth at all times. Well, we say we're the friends of the Lord, don't we? He said, ye are my friends. You say I'm the friend of God. I've been made to be the friend of God. Well, then does that not produce, does, that, does it not necessitate, is it not required this fruit this constancy of love for him? I imagine so. Surely that's to be expected. That we are not, we are not to be as those who are cold and indifferent and wavering. No, no. Again, thinking of Jonathan, was not his soul knit with the soul of David? Love, love in that friendship. This is the love that we're to have. True friendship produces a strong love for Christ. If we really have this friendship, it will manifest in strong love. But it will also produce a high esteem for Christ. A high esteem. We don't just love Him, but we esteem Him. Do we not? Do we not say he is altogether lovely? Is that not what happens in this friendship? Are we stuck? Are we stuck in some old, dead, formal relationship? Or is there life and vitality in this relationship we have with Christ? So that this morning, it's not just I've been able in the past to say he is altogether lovely. I am still saying, indeed, I feel it more than ever. He is altogether lovely. The esteem in which I hold him is higher than ever. Through all the challenges of life, he has remained faithful. He's never forsaken, never left me. Constantly he is with me. And you don't just possess that esteem within these walls, I hope. It's something that is reflected in your life. The world can see it. They see in you this high esteem for Jesus Christ. They may not understand it, but they see it nonetheless. Oh, we esteem Him, and this makes everything different for us when He comes with His commands, when He comes with His admonishment and rebuke. Such is our esteem that we receive it. And thirdly, as we think of the fruit, 
that this friendship bestows. It's a strong love for Christ, high esteem for Christ, and swift obedience to Christ. It's swift, isn't it? Again, the language of John 15, 14 would indicate that. Ye are my friends if you do whatsoever I command you. The friend obeys. It's not a friendship that brings us into equal footing with Christ so that we are the same. We're not the same. He's God. So let us not lose sight of the, the distinction. I think that's what's happened in many evangelical churches, you know. That there's a kind of familiarity that has lost the distinction. I mean, if you were to say to your friends, you're my friend, if you do everything I command you, <laughs> you would start questioning, what, what's, I thought we were equals. But the friendship with Christ is distinct. It is distinct. He remains our Lord and Savior. He remains in this dignified position. Oh, the friendship is real. It doesn't, it's not undermined by it. But we recognize the dignity of who He is and we obey His commands. Thirdly, it is fitting today. It is fitting today. It's fitting for you to become the friend of God today. It's feasible for you. It is favorable for all. It is fitting today. It is fitting today. Is it not? With this, this table that is here, is it not fitting? Fitting that we recognize friendship with the Lord. For those of you that are saved, to recognize the friendship that exists that allows this to take place. And those of you who are not saved, to see what it is you're missing. First of all, as we think of how fitting this is, Christ issues a call to sinners. He issues a call to sinners. This is why it's fitting. He issues a call to come into friendship with Him. You think of the language, and I put myself today, this morning as we're gathered here in this house, the language of those that stood around blind Bartimaeus. You remember? Mark 10. And what did they come and say to him? Be of good comfort, rise. He calleth thee. He calleth thee. And Martha did the same thing for Mary, didn't she? And she comes to say, Mary, and says, the Master has come and calleth for thee. I feel like that today, standing before you. These individuals who come and stand before a needy soul and say, He calleth thee. He calleth for thee. Is He calls for thee. Those of you who are not saved, He calls for thee. He calls for thee. Those of you who are backslidden, He calls for thee. He's not content to see you following afar off. It brings him no pleasure to see you not enjoying the fruit of his work. He takes no delight in you coming to this table and feeling a distance. He calls for thee. In these moments as you're sitting here in the pew, don't, don't just sit in some academic fashion. Hear the words of love. Hear the call of Christ. He calls for thee. He utters individual calls. He sees the darkened soul. He sees the depressed heart. He sees the distant believer. He sees the lost and the wandering sheep. And He calls for thee. He does. Be assured of it. And what does He say? Is it not perfectly encapsulated in Matthew 22? When our Lord says, all things are ready, come. All things are ready, come. <laughs> yes. He doesn't bid us and then say, all right, you've come, great. Now just wait a minute, wait. 
until I finish here. No, no, he's, he's already done the work. This is what's great about being on the other side of the cross in terms of the, the linear progression of time in this world. Being able to stand on the other side of the cross and, and not be like, say, Simeon, for example, with this hope and anticipation and looking forward to it and desiring him to arrive and believing that he will come before he dies. But to be on the other side, to know that he, yes, he has come and yes, he has completed the work and offered himself without spot to God and he arose the third day according to the Scriptures. To know that the work is done and to know then as he invites men as he did in John 7, 37, if any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. There is no delay there in that language, is there? He stands on that occasion and he issues those words as to be something immediately responded to. And so in his language I come. This is a living word. This is a living invitation. And I utter it. I offer it. I present it to you as a word for you today. And it's fitting to be responded to. To come. Come, backslider. Come. Come with all your baggage of sin. Don't try to hide it. Don't try to like dust and dirt on the floor that you sweep under a rug and hope no one sees. Bring it to the cross. Bring it to the one who bears the burden for sinners, who deals with sin in full. Bring it to the one and expose it. Bring it to him. Don't try to hide it. Don't try to shove it up your shirt. Bring it. Hand it over. All your hands filled with your sin. Present it into Christ. And then when he takes them from you, by faith you embrace him. What do you lack that is not found in Christ? What is it? Is there something he can't meet? Some need that can't be addressed? Is there some sin too great for him to forgive? What do you lack? He issues a call as fitting for you to respond today. So Christ issues a call to sinners. And second, sinners who come may dine at this table. Sinners who come may dine at this table. And I mean this table. This one today. If you come today, you may dine today. This is the encouragement. <laughs> no program here. No. No, if you try to participate... In this meal, having not come to Christ by faith, you may fool me, the elders of this church, but you're not fooling Christ. He knows. Just as he knew Judas sitting around that table that night, he knew who Judas was and he knew where he was. He is not deceived. But you may come. If in your heart of hearts you see your need of Christ and you see him willing to receive you, you see him standing there in the doorway of a gospel household when all who enter may be saved. Written over that door is whosoever and Christ stands there at that door uttering those words, whosoever will may come. And walk in, walk into that promise as you would walk into the doorway of a household. And when you walk in, what will you see? You will see a royal feast. A feast. And it's made royal not by the extent of or the glory of the elements that are on the table, but by the host. Because what's before us As we look at it in the material, what is it? Bread? Fruit of the vine? If we're looking to it like some kind of great meal, it's, it's slim offerings. But if you with the eye of faith see what is provided in those elements, you with the eye of faith see there in that bread is a body. 
that suffered, suffered in my place. And there in that cup is signified blood that was shed for my sin. You will understand the royal nature of this feast by the host who lays it out and by the value of what brings it to pass. Because you've never sat at a table that costs more than this table. It costs the very life of the Son of God. And what does he say? Ho, oh, everyone that thirsteth, come ye. Everyone that thirsteth, come ye. Come. You say, well, how much does it cost? Thy money perish with thee, we say to that. Thy money perish with thee. Because we come with nothing in our hands but the evidence of our guilt. No, this is a meal for friends. What happens when you go to the Denny's or wherever, is it? Hey, I'm a friend. Is it you still have to pay? <laughs> you come to this table, you're really a friend. Costs you nothing. Except your friendship. A friendship that's enjoyed by faith alone. And this meal is a confirmation of it. Where friends gather to discern the body and blood of Christ, who have eyes to see the marvel of divine love right here. Some of you can't see it yet. I pray for your soul. I pray for you children that you see it. You come to see it. One day you'll come. Maybe even today you may come. In terms of taking from Christ what he offers. Seeing yourself so favored by the condescension of Christ and his love to you. That you may say with Mephibosheth, when he sat at the king's table, what is thy servant that thou shouldest look upon such a dead dog as I am? But he doesn't just look. He considers us friends. That's the point. Oh, Christian, are you cultivating friendship with the Lord? Are you? Are you? Really? How do your mornings go? How do your days go? How do your evenings end? Are you cultivating friendship with Christ? Let it not be that this table is the only evidence that you're the friend of the Lord. Friends talk. Friends commune. This is not a place for a hard heart. This is not a place for empty affections. This is not a place to treasure sin. This is not a place to depend on your own goodness. This is not a place to remain a stranger to God and His grace. It is a place for friends. Are you the friend of the Lord, are you? Can you put your name in there, Abraham, the friend of God? Convicting, isn't it? Trying to put your name in there. But you go back to what Abraham needed. What was Abraham but an idolater in Ur of the Chaldees, worshipping false gods, hopelessly lost until the God of glory appeared unto him and called him out of that place and from his father's house onto a land that he would show him. And the same message has come to you. Leave your idols. Leave your false gods. Leave your empty habits. Leave all the th Just leave it all behind. And come. Come with me. 
be my friend. And you'll walk with me and I'll show you land. A land that is fairer than day. There's no need of the sun or the moon. And where one day all the blood-bought friends of Jesus will gather with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and celebrate what the Son of God has accomplished together. This is just a little window of that great day. Let's bow together in prayer. Again, I say to you that the Lord gives the invitation, not me, the pastor, not the elders of the church, it's the Lord Jesus. If you're his friend because you've confessed your sin, you've turned and believed on Christ, if you're his friend, then you sit by his invitation at this table. If you're not his friend, if you're not saved, then sit, but just let the bread, let the cup pass by. And as it passes you by, I want you to see that that's what's happened in the message. It has come to you. It is passing you by. And you have not taken what is offered to you. Come to Christ now then. Seek the Lord while he may be found. And call ye upon him while he is near. Lord bless thy word. And may it truly, not merely by the effort of the preacher, but by the work of the Spirit, be preparatory for us here. As we dine with thee, Melt our hearts increasingly over our sin. Melt our hearts increasingly as we consider thy love. Take us now to Calvary. Give us grace to dwell there for this time. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.